0: You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashofSteel.com. This is episode 80... What is it, six? six? Really? Already? I I think so. You're right. This is episode 86. And I am your host, Troy Goodfellow. Back with you uh, after a week. And I'm gone next week as well, so you're going to get very little of me. With me today is one other person. So this is going to be a very tight and intimate conversation, we have regular panelist, uh, freelance writer, uh, Rob Zachney. Hey, everybody. So, Rob, you've been on Gamers with Jobs twice. Are you and Julian plotting against me? Um,
1: no. Why would you think that? You, have, you have nothing to fear from us, and we certainly don't have a plot against your life.
0: I don't trust either of you. You're both too close. Well, I mean... I think one of you should move to Idaho.
1: Yeah, that'd be fun.
0: (laughs) No, you're making the podcast rounds, and that's great, and I'm glad. Uh, This week, we have a few things we want to cover. It's going to be a bit of a shorter show, because I've got a lot of packing and planning to do uh, before I return to Canada for a family event, and then I'll be back not next week, but the week after. I figure I should take some time there. Uh, once again, the show next week will be in the good hands of Rob and Julian. I do want to start with some news that just came out today, uh, which is sort of connected to you know podcasts we've done in the past. Uh, two guests are now working together. Uh, a few weeks, a couple of months ago, we had Derek Paxton, the lead designer of the amazing epic Fall from Heaven two mod for Civilization Four. And a few weeks ago, we had the CEO of Stardock, Brad Wardell, explaining uh, what the hell happened with Elemental. And now Derek's working at Stardock, and he's taking over uh, some design uh, job over there. So what do you make of this, Rob? Um,
1: Well, I I find it (laughs) tremendously exciting news, and I really can't think of anything um, that Stardock could have done that would have... Renewed my faith in the future of Elemental, like bringing Paxton on. Um, I was, I mean, I was really crushed when I heard that the uh, standalone Fall from Heaven wasn't going to happen. Right. Um, and I know that, you know, when we were ha- when we were talking, you know, about our first reactions to Elemental before we filed our reviews, um, I think I said to you, you know, I was running into a problem with Elemental where we'd recently played Fall from Heaven for the podcast, and I kept wondering, well. What what does this game offer, really, that Fall from Heaven didn't offer and, frankly, offer a little better? Um, so, I mean, I find myself something, if there's one person who could bring Elemental around to being a really good standalone strategy game, um, you know, I think Derek's pa- Derek Paxson is exactly the person that Stardock needs.
0: Do you really think he can have that big of an influence? I mean, so many of the design decisions are already pretty much firmly in place um, Fall from Heaven too was had very varied races, had a really deep mythology uh, Elemental has races that are pretty much identical to each other has a decent backstory but not really this deep sense of I'm building a world uh, though that's something that Wardell has certainly tried to do and something he's uh, tried to be very proud of, it doesn't quite work for me as an interesting world yet for a number of reasons, partly because the campaign is really a tutorial and it's kind of hobbled, so I don't have any clue who these two factions really are fighting each other. Uh, do you really think that just bringing him on board can really change the direction of Elemental? I mean, he's clearly a very gifted designer. He thinks about games in a very special way. Uh, but is it too late? Or what do you think he can actually fix?
1: Well, no... I- I have to think back to the language of the press release. If if, if I'm recalling correctly, he was made head of development going forward, right? Yes. And Brad is stepping, pretty much he's stepping down from lead designer and he's going into work on AI and he's going to retain his position as executive producer. But really, like, I think it seems to me like the direction <laughs> that Elemental takes from this point forward is going to be largely set by Paxton. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for me, I think it really comes down to how much latitude um he's given and the fact that he was brought on and you know brad stepped aside you know that that seems like a promising step um Mm -hmm. because i think at this point you really do need there is a bit of a mess that needs to be cleaned up here and i think you'd be kind of wasting um you know what the talents Derek has shown himself to have Mm -hmm. if you don't give him some role in sort of reshaping that universe um because, I mean, he, he created a pretty interesting and uh, flavorful world in Fall from Heaven.
0: That evolved over very many years. I mean, it started, like many fantasy worlds do, you know, full of cliches. Uh, but quickly became something actually quite special and unique. But it did take, eventually, I mean, it's years in development. And Elemental does not have years.
1: That uh, That's true. And uh, that's... No, I mean I, I have no response for that because you're absolutely right. Um, you know, short of a an expansion that they can release as a product um, that can get some ballyhoo behind the product, I mean, I don't I don't know how much time they have to salvage this thing. Um, but I mean, it, you know, Brad was just on the show, and he, he, it sounds like StarDock is committed to the idea of Elemental being a platform um, they're going to develop for a number of years. Yeah. Um,
0: absolutely I mean, so Paxton this is, has this is, this time. Is what, this is what Stardock is doing for the next 12 to 18 months at least
1: right I mean like you know how many how many years have we been playing Sins of a solar Empire like we going if we assume that Trinity is the end of the road for that that's been about what two and a half three years right um, so I think you know I, I think he does have time especially if they if they release some new um, some new products Um. And the, the other thing I think they've really got to commit to is the idea that it's just, it's not a very interesting world yet. And my, my fear is that because it's sort of Brad's world, um, he's going to be hesitant to acknowledge that. But it needs to be faced. Like, the you know, Elemental was a game that could have sort of had an Alpha Centauri-ish vibe. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it doesn't. Um, speaks to a lot of the game's conceptual problems. Like, it's just, like, there, there's no rich universe that was imagined there that the game was set in.
0: Have you played Elemental since uh, the podcast, or since your review? Um,
1: not really, but, I mean, I just got an email about the 1.9 patch, right? So I need to... We're
0: already up to 9, are we?
1: Well, they've been, they've been banging them up pretty quickly, but, um, no, I haven't, I haven't gone back to it. I've been... You yeah, know, the train keeps rolling.
0: Yeah. It's one of the games that I do want to revisit uh, before the end of the year, because when I do do the flashies, the awards, I like to judge games based on their final state. Um, And it is a game that has been patched, and they have been trying to do a lot of stuff. I haven't been hearing a lot of people saying, wow, Elemental's finally good. But yeah, the hiring of Paxton, uh, we wish Derek uh, the very best there at Stardock. We hope the move goes smoothly, and that the relocation costs aren't in patch 2.5. Uh that, you know, you're getting a pretty good deal going up there. Uh, It's uh, nice to follow your dream, and uh, uh, Brad's a a character, and he's been a good friend of the show, and I know he respects your work, so hopefully he'll listen to you, uh, and he'll focus on the stuff he does really well, which is promoting his company and doing the AI, except for Elemental, where the AI wasn't any good at all.
1: (laughs) And on that confident note...
0: (laughs) On that confident note, I want to move on to our topic we chose for this week, and it's a topic that uh, Rob's been wanting to do for a while, <clears throat> and it's a topic that, since it's just him and me, uh, it's something I can talk about, uh, nothing that neither Tom nor Bruce uh, had the time for, and the Julian, who was out apparently beating people in the woods or something yesterday.
1: Well, he was apparently had some sort of like near-religious like live-action role-playing experience, which I can't think that that means anything good but I'm god, willing he,
0: to... he, he, he was he wasn't larping for god right
1: um well no he wasn't larping for god but it sounds like he may have met him out there in the woods
0: yeah i've been reading his twitter and he and laura krieger uh, another uh were out there doing and, and our
1: guest and our guest rob davio yeah
0: and yeah and laura is also her tweets have also been very oh my god this was awesome and i'm thinking i, they, th- I think
1: th- they killed a man out there th- i think that's really what it was i think it's this whole larper thing is cover and they were out hunting the most dangerous game
0: (laughs) do they know they're in a cult
1: (laughs) i don't think so not yet they're still in the honeymoon phase
0: julian get out of the cult don't drink the kool-aid don't use the foam sword whatever uh the topic we're doing uh this week is uh logistics and supply in war games um I mentioned this to a friend today, and the response was, ha, 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 ha. I mentioned this to my wife, and she said, that sounds interesting. My wife is a liar. Did she smirk? No, my wife was being very supportive. Okay. <laughs> Probably because I'm leaving tomorrow. Um, so logistics and supply are you know, one of those things that is not a fun part of war games. It's something that a lot of war games leave out. They assume the supply is there, or it's really dumbed down. Uh, but, Rob, you've clearly got a passion for this sort of thing.
1: I do. Can um, you explain why? Well, you know, to, to speaking a little more broadly, I think one of the things that always interests me in a game is how how the player can be disempowered in an interesting way. Um, because I really feel like the deck is stacked in favor of the player a lot. Like, people are generally pretty smart, Um, they can be really good at finding loopholes and Mm -hmm. it's simply, it's very hard to create, uh, certainly if you're dealing with an AI, it's hard to create a game that can, you know, match up and, you know, keep the player from walking all over it. Um, but I think one of the interesting ways of doing that, especially like war games and certain strategy games, um, is you begin introducing questions of supply and, uh, supply and logistics. Um, because really, what what they can what they enable you to do is prevent the player from just being able to execute any plan he can conceive of, and that's okay. you really don't want him to be able to do that because you know if the flank march is always possible, um, you know, or if there's no cost for taking a roundabout way to get around get around the enemy, then you know the player's just going the player's going to be able to use the same tactics over and over again, but introducing the concept of supply and supply chains forces the player to keep his keep his eye on something else. You know, every anything he can any plan he makes has to be squared up with what his current logistical capacity is.
0: So why is supply the best answer to that problem? I guess the question I have to ask. Because supply is often also one of those things where Um, I think of war games that have used Supply, and I think especially of Operational Art of War, which you've played a lot of, I understand. And it's one of my favorite war games. Norm Cogers Operational Art of War series, uh, now available from Matrix Games, uh, Century of War. Um, Apparently there's a big update coming, and I'm looking forward to that. Supply is one of those things, yet another thing to understand. Um, And it often gets in the way of enjoying uh, a war game if all you want to do you just bang the guys into each other. Um, is there a point, why, so why supply? Why is supply the best way instead of say movement costs or communication? I'm going to consider communication part of logistics or order delays. Um, why is supply to your mind one of the better ways to handle this?
1: Well, I think movement points, I mean, right there, you're, you're just dealing with one of the most basic elements of a war game and it's, it, it has limitations, you know. There's only so many ways you can modify the way troops move around the map. Right. Um, so, I mean, if you have dense forest, heavy forest, what you're doing is you're adjusting the movement cost for moving into any of these spaces. But after a point, there's only so many ways you can change that, unless you're dealing with some sort of ridiculously granular movement scale. Mm-hmm. Logistics enables you to add another dimension to it, um, and it also it can also subtly change the it can change the operational geography of a game. How so? Well, if you're if you're looking at a map, you know, say a, say you're Germany trying to invade France, right? Like you've got you've got the familiar geography, the Low Countries, the Ardennes Forest, um, all that. But when you start considering things like supply chains, you know, then you're starting right. now. The map seems to sort of change. There's are certain areas that look really inviting where you could very quickly dash through, but if they're at the wrong end of a supply line, then any move there could be really dangerous because if things there get bogged down, your units are going to slowly start running out of ammo, you know, food, and the entire thing can turn on you. And right. that's that's what interests me, is that, you know, on the one hand, you can study the map all you want, but then right. if you've got supply introduced into the, into the story, then you've got to look at the map, but then you've got to sort of see down to the next level and right. look beyond look beyond you know the, the geography and start seeing the network of roadways and arteries that connect the army together
0: and can you control them because if you once you introduce supply what you introduce to your opponent is how do you interrupt supply yeah uh, which is you know the next if you can't defeat the enemy you starve them is what it comes down to uh, which is one of my favorite ways to win a protracted battle in operational art of war is just to give them outnumber and just cut off the supply and eventually winnow them down um. so we've mentioned operational art of war which you might play probably as much as i have and can you think of any other war game that really grabs that gets supply so essentially i mean operational art of war works because first the scale of the battles can often get huge i mean if you're doing something like waterloo you don't got to worry about supply i mean supply right. is something you worry about for uh, at the operation huge operational level it's not really at the battle core level, it's at the division level. You've got to worry about that sort of thing. So aside from Operational Art of War, I'm trying to think of other war games of that scale that really get that right.
1: Well then I think we have to talk about Aegead's games.
0: Aegead's games.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Anything anything in their campaign system, um, really I mean you can say those war games are really they're really about supply and logistics. They're also about chain of command, mm-hmm. but ultimately when I think of, you know... Because when,
0: when, when I think AGE, I think chain of command. It's all about making sure that chain of command and terrain. Those are two things that come to me when I think of the AGE games. You For you, it's supply.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's... I mean, maybe we just end up playing them very differently, but mm-hmm. for me, um... You know, I mean, chain of command is obviously crucial, because you want good officers and good leadership teams in there. Um... But when I, when I think of the, the, the challenge in an Aegean game is your, your troops, your armies are always safest. Um, if you've got a commander who can command a lot of troops, mm-hmm. um, your armies are always safest if they're bunched up, right? If you've got yeah. kind of an overwhelming force. But those are very cumbersome to move around. And yeah. so the, uh, there's always this tension between bringing your troops together for the decisive battle, but then dispersing them so that they can just eat and get resupplied because they, they go through their provisions very quickly in those games so you actually don't have long to work with your major armies um the, it's all about using those very strategically and the rest of the time for me i'm thinking about how am i going to disperse them safely you know right. how am i going to march them so that they they all arrive at the target location ready for a huge battle and everybody's got you know a full supply of ammunition. Everyone's well fed. Morale is up. Troops are rested. And if you botch any of this, and and for me, that all it all does come down to proximity to supply lines and the way you've the way you've had them marching. Um, you know that the battle, the the outcome of the battle is almost foreordained.
0: So can you th- can you give us an anecdote? I mean, you're really great with these anecdotes. One of the reasons I love having you on the show is you love telling stories with the games you play. Can you think of a game where your supply just either good use of the supply mechanic for listeners who might not be familiar with supply in general or a bad understanding of the supply mechanic, mechanic, won or lost to a battle
1: oh god um, well when I was doing Rise of Prussia um,
0: which is AGI's game from earlier this year
1: right, and it, it's a game about um, Frederick the Great's role in, in the Seven Years War basically the duel between him and uh, Maria Theresa um I mean that's a that's a really that's there's really challenging, challenging geography there uh, because what you're doing is you're fighting along Prussia's southern border um, you know the border shares with Saxony and Austria and what you've got there are you have these river you have a number of rivers cutting through the area and then you also have some rather severe like mountain ranges cutting mm-hmm. through the area and what ends up happening is the the battlefield's almost partitioned into thirds. And it's very difficult to move the army from one to the other, but you have to to take the fight to the enemy. And so, for me, what what always became a a real challenge, it was an ongoing struggle, was making sure that I could launch attacks against the Austrians um, south through the mountains near... Oh, God, like breasts. Wow. Um, But anyway, the point is, so I I needed to bring my troops out of Silesia, and every year, I sort of tried to make my supply line a little neater. Um, And one of the cool things you can do in this game is you can actually sort of design your supply line, right? You can build depots and have them restocked, and um, the more depots you build, and you have your army fighting along these supply lines, the better supplied it is. So after, you know... A really disastrous um, campaign against the Austrians. I ended up sort of doing this fighting retreat back into Silesia, and I got them on the other side of the mountains just as the first snow started to fall. But at this point, I was falling back on a supply line that I'd built up over the course of the game. And so, as my army, my beaten army, was, getting, was pulling deeper into Prussia and the Austrians were advancing, mm-hmm. I was actually getting stronger and stronger. And so they started laying siege to like my, my major fortress city of Breslau in Silesia. And this was going to be a huge prize for them. But just as, they, just as they were laying in for that siege, the dynamics of the game completely turned because of logistics. They were out of supply. They were on the wrong side of the mountain passes. The weather was turning to crap. My troops were you know resupplied, armed to the teeth. And I actually sort of pincered them you know, coming along the two roads, traveling along the river, mm-hmm. and uh, just rolled them up. It was like a completely game-changing moment. The Austrians went from having like 70,000 men um, on my doorstep to losing about 35,000 of those guys in one day. And then I sent them reeling. And it was just, you know, it was completely, you know, it was a shot at the buzzer, basically. Great. But,
0: Which raises a, a question uh, that I have for you is, can AIs really understand supply? If an AI is driven by objectives. And most war game AIs are driven by objectives. You give them a target to shoot for, and they go for it. They value specific targets. I've do AIs in your experience in games that have this. Do they really understand the rules of supply? Do they understand that their army needs to be fed? Because I've often, I've more often captured, you know, done something. Some of what you've done, found armies out of supply and annihilated them then I've had the reverse happen to me now it's not because I'm some great wargaming genius I'm really really not I play far too many games far just not often enough for me to get really good at many of them right um, so is this a problem or is it am I making my making this it's an illusion for me I mean I would cause if I was the Austrians if that was me and I saw that happening I would split up my army I would withdraw I would pursue the army and not take the city. I wouldn't stop at breast. I would chase your reeling army and knock it out first. So is this an issue is is that a problem with logistics and war games that the AI just can't keep up?
1: You know, I mean that's it's difficult to assess always what it the is. AI actually knows, right? Yes. Like I find myself wondering at times because in the G games, I generally don't see the AI um, being stupid about supply. like it, it, Its troops seem generally to be pretty pretty well supplied at any given time. And I wonder, does the AI just have a mastery of the system, or is it being given bonuses to compensate? You know, I mean, with with ga- a lot of games, you just, you know, there's a lot of things you wonder about what's going on underneath the hood. But I can tell you that, like, in the Operational Art of War, um, I would say the AI very definitely had problems with supply. Um... Because, I mean, I remember a lot of games where it was making moves that looked sensible in terms of the map, but it was moving large numbers of troops off of supply lines and pushing them out into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if those maneuvers don't work very quickly, those guys are just going to run out of ammo and they're going to get rolled up. And, I mean, I think that was a game where very definitely uh, the AI struggled with handling supply.
0: So why do you think that is? Is supply just too human a concept? You know,
1: I don't know. I, I think
0: <coughs>
1: I think maybe it, it requires a level of intuition.
0: Intuition, even though it's I, mean, it's... I mean, supply is really math.
1: It is, but it's one of those things where you're dealing with a lot of variables, right? Like, I mean, if you're calculating right. supply through each space between the supply... the uh, the origin point of supplies and the front line. You know, you're dealing with a lot of variables at each level, and they can actually change dynamically.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, there's the origin of supply. I mean, it can change, you know, just a battle or one soldier moving or one unit moving, and all of a sudden the supply route changes.
1: Right. And, and then, of course, you know, yeah. on your turn, you could end up imperiling, you know, an enemy supply line. Um so I think it's one of those things where what what you're dealing with when you when you consider supply is it really requires a lot of imagination and planning I think mm-hmm. I mean and it you know I call it intuition but you really have to sort of see the ways that the next few moves you're going to make are going to affect where your troops are going to be and how many supplies they're mm-hmm. able to get and I think that's that's exactly the sort of decision making that AIs are traditionally very bad at, right? They're right. they're good at making the sensible move with a given unit in a given space. But when it comes to formulating long term strategies, and that's what logistics really is all about, yeah. that's that's not that's not an AI's bag.
0: Right. Except in, in RTS, the best RTS ever made, Rise of Nations. Which is the only RTS I can think of that really took supply super seriously.
1: How did that work? I mean, let's. Oh, I mean, let's talk about that. Cause... I mean,
0: Rise of Nations. Uh, one of the great powers of Rise of Nations was if you led an army into an enemy territory. This was a traditional RTS. You hack wood and you build infantry with your wood. I mean, that's what RTSs are about. Uh, if you had an enemy, if you had an army in enemy territory, it would start getting worn down. You would research. The enemy would research some technology, and it would start taking damage, unless it had a supply train with it.
1: Okay, and, yeah, and is, how is the supply line? How is the supply it's, train?
0: It's just a simple. It's just a unit. The unit is a supply train, uh, and certain wonders and the French, I think, had it, for the French, one of the cultural powers was the supply train healed the troops as well, and a wonder allowed that as well. So it was an RTS where one of the first things you did was go after the supply train. Because that would ma- that would make your weapons all that much more effective. Now the AI handled this very well because it's pretty obvious. If you don't want to suffer attrition, you bring you build a supply unit. Right. Now this is of course true logistics. Uh, it's an abstraction of logistics, as all RTSs are. They're abstractions. Uh, but it was just a wonderful way of abstracting the fact that if you're in Russia in the winter and the, the the Russian national power was the attrition was twice as bad. So if you're fighting against the Russians, uh, it makes things really, really fun once they research that attrition technology. Um, and they get worse and worse with greater upgrades. this This tiny little thing, this one little horse-drawn cart and later it becomes a truck, really changes how you play the RTS because you do go after the supplies. Uh, you want to target it first. So you end up doing your flank runs to go after it for that extra added bonus. Oh, that's you had excellent. To, you, had, you had to protect the supply train. You had to take it with you uh, everywhere. And it was it's a very weak unit. You couldn't just leave it behind and move your troops forward. It always had to be with your troops. So I'd often make two or three of them because once one's gone, you need to be able to keep those guys not dying so fast so if you haven't played rise of nations it is the i mean we've mentioned it so many times on this podcast um the more i talk about it the more i think about it the more i think it is the best real-time strategy game ever made um and i, th- I mean other rtss have done the supply things since then i think rise of legends had something similar um i'm sure there have been others along the way that just escaped me at the moment because my brain is fried
1: did Kohan so, touch on any of this?
0: Kohan had something similar to that. As, I, I think as well. Kohan had uh, the issue of you had to keep. I'm not certain. Uh, Kohan too might have. Uh, I'm sure our listeners can think of many examples, and please fill the comment section, in Flash of Steel, for the show with examples of RTSs that mention supply. But I mean, so it's something you can abstract. Uh, war games aren't about abstraction. War games are about math. And war games are about routes, and they're about angles, and they're about following chains. Um, and it's not just issue of supply. Supply is just one part of logistics. Right. Uh, rein- reinforcements is another big one. And you see this in games like Hearts of Iron 3, where troops need to continually be reinforced. And they can only get reinforced, and the order they get reinforced in depends on how close you are to a headquarters unit. So you can't just leave your headquarters far behind. They have to be, you know kind of IDOT tied up there, uh, abstracting the whole communications chain. And, I mean, supply is just the one part of logistics we think about uh, because it's kind of easy to know, easy to understand. Supply means people are starving. Uh, but logistics is bigger than that. Can right. you think of logistics beyond supply? Uh, good examples? Because supply is, you know, like you oh, said. I
1: well, I have to go back to the, the operational art of war right away. Okay. Uh, because, you know, one of the things, you remember, you, troops were rated across three levels, right? It was proficiency, mm-hmm. but then there was also supply, and then there mm-hmm. was readiness. Yeah. Um, and readiness, I mean, that roughly translated to, you know, I mean, how well prepared were these guys for a fight, you know, and how well rested were the troops. Um, and readiness was, you know, you, you can almost see it, like, in, in the operational art of war, everything was about entropy, really, right? Yes. Like, a unit was at its peak potential after it had been sitting in one place for a while on a good supply line with a headquarters unit nearby, and it was at its maximum fighting power.
0: And it had a rest, basically.
1: Right. And once it, st- once it started moving, it was a little less ready. It was a little less well-supplied. Once it started fighting, and if that fighting was hard, then all those factors began dropping very quickly, and that translates into reduced performance. And so you get this ugly feedback loop, right? Where the, the unit begins to get a little tired... The battles become harder, it's getting more exhausted, it's taking higher casualties. Um, and so really, like in the operational art of war, you had to start thinking about finding ways to get units out of combat and off the line. And find places where you could safely have them resting, but without taking the pressure off your enemy.
0: It's one of the few great war games that encourage you to rotate troops in and out. Where you had to spell troops. Sometimes your best troops, and yet you you might want to keep using those tanks because they're kicking some ass. But you, they really need a break. And if they meet the wrong unit at the right time, that entire unit can shatter. Yeah. Um, it is a game that is has this great tension between keeping the pressure on. And all great war games have this sense. You got to just keep the pressure going. If you if you see them running, you keep chasing them. And a lot of great war games have this operational art of war said no sometimes you got to stop you got to hold the line you got to give your man a chance to recover uh to feed up and fuel up and yeah they might end up getting hit by a a counterattack. but if you extend yourself too far um you will lose that whatever momentum you have will be lost and thrown against you because then you won't even have those units and that's why I, I mean, it, it, Operation Art of War had so many problems, especially with how it modeled air combat and anti-air combat. It was very poorly done. Um, Has been fixed a little bit, but still not quite satisfactorily. But it really got that sense of. Fa- of how you have to take care of your men
1: well and there's one scenario that i would highlight for anyone like if you're interested in this topic and like want to see what what i think is just one of the best examples of this of this problem surfacing in an entertaining way um in the operational of war there's there's a guns of august scenario Mm -hmm. Um, might actually have that title um but it's right it's so you're it plays the germans and as the germans you're in charge of the first push across the border into Holland and France. Um, Belgium. Belgium, yes. Uh, Holland's neutral. But what what you've got to deal with is, you know, you're executing the, the, the Schlieffen plan, right? So you've got to you've got to keep that right hook moving because that's your encircling force. And at first, all these troops they're your best troops, are incredibly powerful and they're just rolling over the opposition. Um, You get the heavy siege guns. Everything's going beautifully. But as this game, as this scenario goes on, you know, these troops are fighting every single turn and resistance is stiffening. The supply lines are getting longer. Plus, those heavy siege guns they're using to break, you know, heavy concentrations of enemies and good fortifications, you know, they don't grow on trees. You only get a limited number of them and they run through ammo very quickly. And so you get this really interesting I mean, basically, the feeling of mounting horror as you realize that you're losing momentum, and if you let your enemy have any time to rest, he's going to get dug in, and you're going to have a hard time breaking through to Paris. But if you keep running your troops like this, you're going to destroy them. I have nothing left when you. And, you know, there's only so many roadways, right? right. So. Even if you've got reinforcements coming up, and you do, you're constantly getting reinforcements for the um, attack on the right flank. You face a major problem just making sure they can reach the front line in an orderly fashion. And so each turn becomes this sort of very painstaking, you know, bit of military craftsmanship, basically, um, as you contemplate like, okay, these guys need to come off the line here, but make sure that we've already got units ready to take their place, because if these guys get... Because in the Operation Order of War, if you try to withdraw from combat, and you're the last unit on the field, you can be engaged um, as you try to withdraw, and that's usually devastating. So it's just a scenario that illustrates all this beautifully. Um, And I played it while I was reading um, Tuckman's The Guns of August, right? And one of the great questions in that book is, how how does... The German military, which has been preparing for this fight for years and years and years, um, how do they manage to just come up short? How do the French manage to survive this? And this this game, this this scenario—it's a really well-designed scenario—really illustrates that, and it really shows the limitations of what a general can do. Where where the battles, you're going to win the battles, but it's all about what's going on behind the lines that's going to determine the outcome of this campaign.
0: Right. Well, I mean, amateurs think tactics and professionals think logistics. I mean, that's how it goes. The idea is you, the, wars are fought in the stomachs of the enemy and in the stomachs of your army. So it's... it's. I, I love that scenario. I, think I've, I don't think I've ever won that scenario with the Germans. Have you?
1: No, I've come up one turn short.
0: Yeah, I've come up with like... I don't think I've come even that close. I usually end up, you know, running out of steam, you know, as I keep... Push and come pretty close, but never quite close enough. There are lots of distractions. I mean, you're right. I mean, this is – the Schlieffen Plan is really the great example of an army that is running, that has to keep running. And all good modeling of that uh, conflict, of that struggle to get uh, France knocked out quickly, uh, really has to capture not just, you know, where the troops are, uh, what the dispositions are and the right – fighting capabilities, but the fact that the Germans, in order to win that, need to almost have superhuman soldiers that can outrun uh, their supply lines. The same thing happens in the March Offensive uh, for the Germans. Russians are out of the war, March 1918. The Germans have this great big push through, and what happens is they just outrun their supply lines. And that caught, they can't get the reinforcements up fast enough they have to now. Western Europe is completely torn apart. So all of the infrastructure isn't even there to get the troops where they need to be, and Ludendorff's grand plan comes apart um, because they cannot make up enough ground fast enough, and that's why they end up having to you know sue for surrender because this was their push. Yeah. Um, not for any great stab in the back or anything. They just their last gamble uh, was march 1918 and it stalled because logistics could not cooperate they had overwhelming force but they could not supply the men
1: well and really it's it's the story of the entire war to an extent and this is why you know when people say world war one's not good fodder for war gaming that's only true if you think of it in terms of generalship on the battlefield you know where yeah there's no general's art to sending the troops over the top into the into the killing fields um but there's a great deal of there's a great deal of military science that went into just making sure all those bodies were delivered to the line um, and again and again you see where you know every every year each side was basically looking for a way to break the stalemate and really the curse was rule one is this awkward time where you where you can deliver massive numbers of men to the war zone but you don't have the technology or the infrastructure to move them around very efficiently there or control them very effectively. And so that's why you get all these elephantine offensives where it's like you know, weeks and weeks of stockpiling ammunition and bringing up reinforcements for the push. Um, and it's just it, it's a very cumbersome way to wage the war. But it's interesting if you're the guy trying to assemble that attack. Um, and this is, you know, one game I wish I'd played, um, I don't know, do you ever play it? Uh, the Guns, it's a Matrix game, um, Guns of August.
0: Yes, yes. I mean... I didn't play it, Bruce Garrett played it more than I did, and it's actually quite good. Uh, not everything's explained very well. Um, it's a game I certainly recommend, uh, probably one we could go back to, We should do an entire show on World War One. actually. Uh, but this is kind of turned into that show. Um, but I... Th- I think you're right. World War One is underestimated because people look at the trench warfare and over the top as if that's it. And World War One's so much more than that. You have uh, even just cracking that nut um, can be interesting um, that, because you have to sometimes you have to send men over the top just to keep the pressure on. Once again, so it's uh, Guns of August is uh, a game I recommend. Um, it's been many, many, many months since I've played it, so I don't want to make any firm uh, judgments on it, especially with regards uh, to this. It's great uh, feature is what makes Guns of August a great game, and I think this is some way to capture the logistical problems of the period, is that after the first couple of turns, you can only activate a certain number of units. You can't use every unit you have on the board. You can have a certain number of activation points. So you have to decide where you want to spend your offensive, more or less. Um... So that really makes the battles, it makes the war move at a more leisurely pace. Um, so the trick is, you know, I want to activate where this guy is when the enemy is not going to activate, because I know a counterattack isn't coming. Um, but if an attack is coming, then I want to be ready to fight back uh, and chase the enemy. So it, that so really doesn't have a whole lot of the logistic stuff going on. But as a World War One game, I think it's probably one of the best on the market. Um, and like I said, we can do an entire show on World War One because we did do one on World War Two. We should do one in the Vietnam War too. how yeah, else everyone. I,
1: well, the show keeps going long enough. We will.
0: This um, show's gonna go forever.
1: Excellent. I, I love to hear that. Um, <laughs> if we, we just need enough topics for forever, um, nations of the world fight more wars. Designers wow. make games of them. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah.
0: Because we're making so much money doing this. Something,
1: um, you know, something else I, that, that occurs to me is that what I, what I, another reason I like games that really touch on supply and logistics, particularly supply, is that so often in military history, the battles are fought almost accidentally, right? There, you know, the the set piece is actually kind of a rarity in military history. Most of the time it's armies bumping into each other or somebody, you know, hurriedly reacting to an unforeseen move. And a lot of times supply is one of the motivating factors for this. You know, armies move around because they're searching, they're foraging for supplies.
0: Oh, um, the, the the battle of Gettysburg because the con- the Confederates needed shoes. Perfect. And they stumble into uh the Union army.
1: Right. And I, and I think one of the one of the great things You know, if we if we talk about like we enjoy the narrative of our war games, how you know the stories that come out of them, the surprises that you know unfold. Um, You know, if if you're designing a game and you create, and if you and if you take the time to model supplies, um, what you were another thing you were doing is you were creating a mechanism to create those unexpected moments. Because again, the the, these These concepts are there to sort of interfere with the player's ability to do whatever he damn well pleases, mm-hmm. but they can also be turned around to force him to completely deviate from what he was doing and I think that's one thing you know we've talked about this especially in a game where you're up against an AI but we've talked about this before on the show where there's always the risk that it just becomes too mechanical you know the player the, the player just is able to execute his plans without having to worry about unforeseen consequences disruption and introducing these concepts I think creates a really easy way to force the player to adapt it's 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 a mechanic that fosters the unexpected
0: good it's interesting way of putting it um, any other final eulogies?
1: Um, not much. Just I mean, one one last game I would mention would be um, the Take Command series and Scourge of War Gettysburg, you know where you've got the um, right. ammunition carts wandering around the battlefield. And that's it's interesting because those games often feel very slow paced, mm-hmm. um, but it can be pretty damn dicey when you've got troops in a good position on the firing line. Um, you know, holding the line, and they're running out of ammo. And there's always this dilemma of how can I safely bring these troops back, have them restock, mm-hmm. and get back to get back in position without losing everything. One of the easy answers to that, obviously, is well, bring the ammo to them. But if you do that, you know, I mean, that there is a major risk that you're going to lose that cart. You know, if your troops start to rout just as the uh, ammunition cart shows up. Um, I mean that that could be game over. You know, yeah, you only have one gone. of these. Yeah, you might only have one of these for the entire scenario. Yeah. So if you lose it, um, whatever your troops have in their mag, whatever your whatever your army has in its magazines, that's it.
0: Yeah. So there's another good example, and that's you know in a battle itself, uh, which is interesting. Um, this is October, and I have decided that October is the pledge drive uh, for the show. So I'm going to make the pitch for donations again. I want to thank Rob and Julian. For doing it and um, last week. And what well, they said it was for beer money, but a little more than that. If you go to flashersteel.com, you will see on the right sidebar a donate button. This goes to PayPal. Um, why donate to Flash of Steel uh, and Three Moves Ahead? Uh, part of it is because uh, life is expensive, uh, games are expensive, uh, serving is actually hosting, hosting the podcast is pretty cheap. Uh, but, you know, I've had a bit of a budget crunch. Uh, we all have. It's a tough economy. And I want to keep churning out good content. Um, I'm if they had a real job. That's how bad things are. Um, but I also want to uh, make the show a bit more professional. Um, in order for me to put proper time into editing it, those are hours I can't spend doing other things. Uh, like writing. Like pitching stories. Uh, like working at a real job at a GameStop or as a waiter or a bartender somewhere, something else might end up doing. This is not being going, this will sometimes go to cover costs, uh, for games, for guys who can't get review builds. Sometimes I'm sent just one and Julian and Rob have to say, well, I can't play it, but we can talk about it, whatever. And, um, I'd like to be able to sometimes throw them some money so they can pay for a game so we can talk about it. It's also so I can occasionally pick up the tab uh, at a conference. If we do a meetup at PAX East or at E3 or at GDC, it would be nice if, you know, three moves ahead could, you know, pay for a lunch or something. Um, people have been very generous with donations so far, and please do not feel obliged to donate. There will never be a subscription. I'm never going to force anybody to do this. Uh, but if you do like what we do and appreciate what we do, Want to help us do it better and help us do it more? I'll accept donations in any size. Uh, smallest donations so far is about two bucks. We have largest is about a hundred. We have a few of those. Uh, some very generous people. So you know, anywhere in there is great. You know, if everybody who listens to the show chipped in five bucks, I'd be laughing. But you know, that's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. Uh, but this is a chance for you to show your support to Flash of Steel and to move[s] ahead. It's not just for the podcast, it's also for the blog, which you'll notice has been updated twice this week, which hasn't happened in a long time. Uh, One of them was a guest blog. I want to start blogging more, but that means I've got to have more time playing games, which means I can't have a real job. Uh, Flash of Steel is a special place, it's where this podcast got started, and I want to encourage more of my colleagues to post guest blogs on it, uh, because I think the strategy game community is needs a place like Flash of Steel. Uh, I get a lot of compliments on what I try to do and uh, I want to keep doing it. And that's what the donate button is for. How often, how much more often would you hear this? Only during October. October is pledge drive and then after that you won't hear it again until next October, though the donation button will always be there. So, chip in 5, chip in 10, chip in 20, chip in nothing. That topic didn't go terribly? I
1: hope not. We'll find out.
0: We'll <laughs> find out in the comments how boring you find supply and logistics. Uh, next week, as I said, I will be out of town. I'm back in Canada doing all that fun stuff a uh, family wedding to go to, and I come back in two weeks' time. Uh, so, I will once again, turn over the podcast to Julian and Rob, and they can do what they will with it. They did a great job last week with Rob Davio. Uh, next week, who knows what they will bring you. Thank you for listening, Rob. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Have a good week, everyone.